1: Hello, welcome to the New Books in History channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Professor Andreikos Varnava. He is Professor of British Imperial and Colonial History in the College of Humanities, Arts and so- Social Sciences at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Today, we'll be discussing his newly published book. British Cyprus and the Long Great War, 1914 to 1925. Empire, Loyalties, and Democratic Deficits, published in New York by Routledge 2020. Andrei Kos, it means the world to me to be in dialogue with you today.
0: Thank you. It means the world to me as well. It's a pleasure to be with you. To begin, can
1: you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar? you would become as an adult?
0: Well, I grew up in Melbourne. Um, My parents um, were both from Cyprus. They were both born in Cyprus. My father came to Australia as an immigrant, uh, as a young man um, around the age of uh, 18 or 19 in 1952. Um, And then um, my mother came after many years later with my dad, they had met Uh, in Cyprus in 1974 during the war that occurred and they uh, came to Australia um, and later got married and um, I came along Um, in 1979. um, I grew up um, always, as far as I can remember anyway, having a passion for history, um, particularly the two world wars. Um, Part of that was, I suppose, um, facilitated by watching a lot of old movies, um, which I think is a good way of, you know, getting into history. And I just pursued history once I went to university and immediately fell in love with the study of history and made a decision to try to pursue it all the way. Uh, obviously, one that doesn't mean that one will succeed. Um, uh, but I'm I'm thankful that I have uh, succeeded in um, in getting to where I am.
1: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
0: So the the, the origins of the book, um, I suppose, are that it partly is a continuation of my first book which was my, based on my PhD, British imperialism in Cyprus, 1878 to 1915. And, you know, when I originally started the PhD, I thought that I would, I I, I didn't know that I would stop at 1915, and and I had hoped that I wouldn't. But I later realized that that was too much. So I ended up stopping at 1915, which seemed a logical break. Uh, with the failed British offer to cede Cyprus to Greece. And then it was always in my mind to write this next book, um, looking at more generally the role of Cyprus during the First World War and the experiences of the Cypriots as part of the British Empire. Um, But before I did this book, I discovered the Cypriot mule Corps and decided to do a themed book on the Cypriot mule Corps and all of the elements, I suppose, of that story. So I took a break from this book, from writing this book that we're going to talk about. Um, and the themes of, of this book really are, as the subtitle suggests, or as the, well, the title suggests as well, that I'm not just talking about the war that finishes in inverted commas in 1918, but I'm interested in pursuing this idea that others have also talked about that there is this long uh, great war that follows after the armistice, um, and there there, there is a, a you know hot side to it, and then there's there's also the cold side to this um, that continues particularly in the context of the ottoman and former ottoman worlds um, but what i'm trying to convey is that the the, the experiences of colonial societies need to be studied uh, the experiences during the, the war and i suppose i'm really interested in this question of loyalties and you know complicating that the question of loyalties and on the other hand looking at this idea of democratic deficit within a colonial setting and how this is something that is on the one hand in, inherent within colonial societies but also we see um because of the na- because of the nature of british control and rule and governance but also we're seeing in particularly in this context how the cypriots are so uh, the greek cypriots are so fixated with one idea that they um Really, it's to the detriment of their own development, uh, political development.
1: What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell?
0: So each each chapter, um, apart from the first one, I suppose, um, tries to t- tries to tell a-, a story, and then I try to bring this together uh, later on. So I'm trying to tell the story of World War One in Cyprus, and the contribution of the Cypriots through different lenses. The first chapter, or the second, well, the second chapter, but the first chapter that does this is one that looks at the elites, the educated classes, the political classes, and that chapter looks at how, for instance, they were fixated on union of Cyprus with Greece, known as Enosis. Um, as well as how they became subsumed to, you know, at, at certain level, at a certain level, with what is going on in Greece and the schism that was occurring in Greece between the pro-entente Prime Minister Eleftherios Venizelos and the the, the King and other royalists who were pro-German but wanted Greece to remain neutral. Um, but for the British and French, this, there was always this sense of uh, a neutrality that was tending to be pro-German, and how this um, can be understood within the context of what is going on in the war. The the other chapter then looks at middle-class loyalties, particularly focused on British military intelligence and what this tells us about these loyalties, so loyalties is, is at the heart of the book. The, the following chapter looks at the lower classes who were primarily the ones who had come forward and enlisted in the Cypriot mule corps as auxiliaries, driving mules in Macedonia primarily. And then we look at how the war impacts upon Cyprus, particularly in the context of refugees that are uh, coming to Cyprus and how they are received um, by both the government the authorities more generally, but also the local population. And then we look at the strategic uh, dimension, the strategic importance of Cyprus, and that, which is a theme that continues from my first book, and why the British decided to retain Cyprus at the end of the war, having offered it to Greece during the war, and you know the important the debates that occurred um that underpin i suppose that decision as well as the broader context of the empire and what's going on there and and finally i return to the i try to bring it together i suppose in in this last chapter to some extent um when i look at um analysis again in the in the period from 1921 to 25 when cyprus actually becomes a crown colony where the british actually say well You know, we annexed Cyprus in 1914 when the Ottomans joined the war on the side of the Central Powers. We offered it. It was rejected. Now, you know, after the war, we've decided to keep it. And in 1925, we make it a crown colony. So that's a statement that they're there to, that they want to stay. Um, And I put that into context and look at how the Cypriots, particularly the Greek Cypriots, are reacting to these developments and the democratic deficit that, basically sort of results from this.
1: What does your book contribute to the history and historiography of Enosis?
0: Yeah, so Enosis is, you know, I suppose, one of the central um, subjects in the book. And one of the things I've tried to do in my writing, in my research, is to not, I suppose, ignore the fact that Enosis was was important to the educated Greek Cypriot classes, but at the same time to critique it uh, um, as a, you know, realistic policy, particularly because it was a policy, an idea that failed, right? And when when, when something fails, we need to evaluate why it failed. And this book does that. Um, it, it doesn't. Um, it 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 doesn't question that enosis was popular amongst the educated classes. It questions that the, any idea that it was popular amongst other classes. Um, it, it is beginning to, I suppose, influence su- some in the middle classes. But still, we don't see this as you know being um as popular as it is for the educated classes and it's certainly not really there in terms of the lower classes the the majority of Cypriots lived in rural areas they were peasants and or rural laborers so we need to look at their history as far as we as 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 far as possible and and what we what we see is that Enosis is not um, the same. It doesn't have the same meaning for different classes. So this is another element of the book that I, I really go back and break down society along um, a sort of uh, class lines to show that Enosis um, meant different things and uh, for different classes. Can
1: you offer a brief history of Cyprus between the Greek War of Independence and World War
0: I? Yes, yes. Um, so the first chapter looks at basically the period of my first book um, and the subtitle of the chapter, The Consequential Possession, is taken from that book. But I I, I do add, it's not simply a summary of that book. I do add m- more here than, than I did uh, in that earlier book, and that's partly connected to the fact that I've developed you know, as a historian since publishing that book in 2009. Um, so I talk about some of the same themes and, you know, um, identity and nationalism and so forth, but I also talk talk about um, how the British uh, um, managed through their policies to uh, create better uh, health conditions. This resulted one reason why it results in increasing the population and this of course has consequences for for society by the by the eve of the first world war um, so i think that chapter is ne- is 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 necessary to set the background to um, what's happening and what has happened um, in Cyprus by the start of the war. And, and one of those things that doesn't get talked about a lot is the fact that by by around 1912, we're beginning to see Cypriots emigrating uh, to non-traditional places. I mean, traditionally, they, they're they emigrating to Egypt, they're emigrating to Syria, Anatolia. These places are very close to Cyprus, and, and you know, they can go back to Cyprus relatively uh, easily. However, by 1912, we're seeing Cypriots emigrating to Western Europe, but also North and South America. And this is a result of the two things. One is they're being pushed out of Cyprus because the population has increased and there aren't uh, the opportunities there to sustain them, but also they're being pulled because of the opportunities for work in those other places.
1: Can you tell us about the history and lived experiences of Armenian refugees in Cyprus, as well as Ottoman Greek refugees in Cyprus?
0: Yeah. So this is the subject of, cha- of one of the chapters where I look at the refugees. I look at, um, so there were, there were three broadly speaking groups of refugees, the white Russian, the Armenian, and the Ottoman Greek that settled in Cyprus. They, they, were you know as a consequence of um conflicts and this this feeds into the idea of the long great war they were conflicts i suppose that start after the war but sort of are uh, rooted in conditions of the war itself um so probably out of those groups the most i mean in the end not many of the white russians ended up staying in cyprus and they the vast majority ended up being moved to the balkans the armenians uh, were being expelled after the war those that survived the genocide were promised that they could return to their homes they would come they were supposed to come under french control uh, in and around cilicia in southeastern anatolia and other and sort of further north as well but they're but they're being expelled by uh turkish nationalist Kemalist forces and they make their way to cyprus they're actually quite a sizable community um they were primarily folk who were uh skilled um in you know they they could open their own businesses um very quickly, they also, for example, uh, form the Melkonian Institute as a school that evolves into um, attracting Armenians from various parts of the Middle East. We, we probably know more about the Armenians than we do about the Ottoman Greeks who become, to some extent, subsumed into society because of their names. Um, you can distinguish an Armenian in Cyprus by their name. Uh, It's a lot harder to do that uh, for Ottoman Greeks. So it was a little bit more speculative, the research on the Ottoman Greeks, but there's no doubt that they were uh, more, let's say welcomed by the elites and they were pressuring for more uh, to be allowed in, uh, partly because of course this would alter the demographic dynamics uh, in their favour because the census censuses that were occurring would, would basically be counting the population according to their religion. Uh, so they, you know, the elites wanted more Ottoman Greeks to be coming here. Of course, they too were expelled by Kemalist forces um, as a result of the... Um, as the Greeks call it, the Asia Minor catastrophe, and the Turks call it the Turkish War of Independence. Uh, I think it's fair to say that all of these groups actually settled really easily as, you know, maybe a little bit of, uh, maybe some issues at the beginning, but as time, uh, uh, you know, moved on, they, they integrated really, really easily into society.
1: Can you elaborate on the experiences of white Russian refugees in Cyprus? How was their experience of emigration and resettlement similar to and different from Armenian refugees and Ottoman Greek refugees in Cyprus?
0: Yeah, so there were around fifteen hundred white Russians who were in Cyprus at um, in in as they were leaving the conflict. Um, during the Russian Civil War most of them were in a were in camp some of them were allowed a couple of hundred were allowed to leave the camp and establish themselves in in different parts of of the island most of these people managed to either get a job or start a business many of the people we're talking about for example were had a medical, Korea so they opened up a, a clinic M- many also wanted to leave and that and that was fine um, at some stage however the British wanted to and they you know to basically rid themselves of the liability of caring for the refugees in the camp there were several efforts to remove them eventually after a few uh, failed attempts, they managed to um, have them finally removed to the Balkans, and initially they wanted all of them to leave, including the ones who had established themselves outside of the camp. However, there was support amongst the Cypriots for them to stay, and eventually, after they petitioned, they and eventually after they also signed guarantees that they wouldn't be a liability on the government there were around a hundred or so who m- were given permission to stay in Cyprus and some of these people were you know were made important contributions to Cypriot society doctors, engineers and others, teachers um, and like I said they integrated relatively well into Cypriot society and um, and also, we know, you know, in, during the interwar period, some some were also able to bring their families from elsewhere there and, and you know, to Cyprus. And eventually they took out, um, you know, Cypriot, British, whatever, citizenship as well, nationality.
1: What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of World War One?
0: So the contribution... That is that this is one of the first books that looks at colonial societies during the Great War. Um, there's so much more work that needs to be done, particularly in in other parts of the British Empire. Um, the, often the British Empire in the Mediterranean and Middle East is is neglected. So that's another contribution that part of what I do is to bring to the table the um the British Empire in the Mediterranean and that we should not be excluding it from our understandings of British imperial history. The contribution of the Cypriots is is another important thing and this complication of the idea of loyalties um, and also that, you know, we we, we see a lot of work on the British Empire and a lot of talk about resistance or nationalism or, or conflict. But often we, we lose sight of the different sections of society that are, you know, partaking in empire um, in one way or another. And, you know, and some of that is actually, well, the opportunities that present themselves. Um, and this complicates the idea of loyalties, I, I feel. Um, you know, the Cypriots who served in the British forces in the First World War, uh, mostly were not, you know, opposed to the to the war or opposed to the British position uh, and probably were mostly indifferent um, but took the opportunity to serve because it meant a stable and really good salary by comparison to what they could earn in Cyprus. But if they were opposed to the British and opposed to the war, they probably wouldn't have served. Um, You know although they were promised that they wouldn't be in harm's way they were in harm's way and many of them died around 180 so what i'm bringing with this book is i'm trying to situate um colonial societies and their contributions and experiences in the great war uh, to the history of the british empire and trying to amalgamate what sometimes might appear to be separate histories of world war one and empire
1: can you tell us about Antonios Triantafilidis? Yes. Why is he a person of consequence?
0: Yeah, so Antonios Triantafilidis is the subject of my follow-up book, a uh, small book, um, and that focuses more on his assassination in 1934 but he enters the scene during the first world war as a young man who has graduated from law in athens and he comes back to cyprus and he immediately um steps into the political fray obviously as a young man he is uh, you know if you like several rungs below many others who have been involved for years, but he he quickly makes an impact and he becomes involved in politics. He is in favour of union with Greece, so he is in the pro-Enosis camp. He is critical of the older guard who, during this period, um, but he's also beginning to, I think, realise that to achieve Enosis, the British need to be on side. They need to be convinced. And I think this is something that remains with him throughout his, I mean, short life, um, because it's cut short with his assassination. What, What role he plays during this period is mostly behind the scenes. And at one stage, it appears that he has the... Um, respect and ear of the of the high commissioner slash governor who proposes to him a solution to break what is a deadlock in the sense that the Greek Cypriot elites have withdrawn if you like from participating in the representative institutions and it's it's unclear you know if later on he talks about this as well but it's he he seems to be supporting of this but doesn't seem to have the power i suppose or the influence to to make it happen and the opportunity is lost but i i think i mean he, he's an important figure during this period even though he himself is not um you know the most important figure and not um elected you know to the in the legislature um, but he is important nonetheless behind the scenes and you tell us about Theophanes Theodotu why is he noteworthy so he's noteworthy he's in fact Triandafyllis's well future father-in-law and he is one of the ones in the old guard if you like who who've been around for a while and he has been um, very much in the, at the forefront of supporting Enosis. um however you know the british don't seem to you know they on the one hand there is an, there is a, a kernel of respect for him but on the other hand there is this recognition that Theldotu um, is is the type that is unwilling to go to the you know to fight for enosis in in you know in, in that sense. Um so he he's a figure that the British keep at a keep at a distance. They don't um, he's not that he's not like Driandafilidis in the sense that the British don't think that Theodoto is someone who can um, you know provide leadership that is practical and and logical, uh, that he is, uh, if you like, rather more the emotional type.
1: What were the repercussions for Cyprus of the Sykes-Picot Agreement?
0: Yeah, so the Sykes-Picot Agreement from 1916 has several repercussions. Um, um, As we know, the Sykes-Picot Agreement was signed by the British and the French, and foresaw, if you like, the uh, partition of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East into different zones, zo- to, you know there would be a French and, and British zones where they would be in more or less uh, absolute, if you like, control. and then there would be zones in which they would have um, influence over uh, but not control and would be consisting of an Arab state or states. In relation to Cyprus, the immediate impact was that as a, as a side agreement, the French side agreed uh, with Armenian leaders to form the Armenian Legion or the Legion d'Orient, which I've written about yeah. um, elsewhere. And basically what this meant was that uh, Armenians would be trained uh, by the French in Cyprus uh, at a camp in Cyprus, So this, you know, post dates the genocide and the majority, well, not majority, but a good proportion, probably around 40%, came from the United States to be part of this legion. Um, There was a sort of, you know, intricate uh, facilitation helped by the British to bring them to, to Cyprus to be trained. And they served in the French forces, limited as they were in the Middle East, in the Palestine campaigns, and also then as part of the French army of occupation of Cilicia. But they were trained in Cyprus. So this impacted Cyprus, particularly the eastern part of Cyprus, where the camp was. Now, the Sykes-Pico agreement, of course, did did not end up being implemented exactly as it was agreed to. However, you know some of the core principles, I suppose, of it were, and eventually we see um, some things abandoned, other things moving forward. But eventually, we get to the Treaty of Lausanne, and it's in that treaty that uh, the Ottoman, sorry, Turkey, recognises British sovereignty over Cyprus. So this is something that. It, um is agree- is is something that the British have basically um had on the table I suppose to do much earlier and had it basically agreed with the French that they would not cede Cyprus to Greece without and uh, to, to, to another party without um without French consent and that and this moves into basically the British staying there Can
1: you tell us about proposals to establish a Cypriot legion in the British army?
0: Yeah, so the proposals to establish a Cypriot legion in the British army originate with uh, a fellow called Sidis, who was based in Egypt. He was pro-Venizelos. He was a Venizelist. Uh, And he wanted to establish, he made a proposal to establish a Cypriot legion that would uh, fight on the side of the Entente. Um, However, the British were uh, totally against any proposals, any proposal like this, because they worried that it would then be used to say, well, look, we fought on your side, now we want you to give us to Greece. Um, They also didn't really have a great deal of faith in the proposal. but, you know, they, they were always sceptical about proposals like this. They were sceptical about the earlier propos- early proposals to form a Jewish legion. Eventually, they came, came on board with that. And they were also sceptical about the very early ideas to form an Armenian legion, which predate the sykes pico agreement. Um, and they rejected those. The French rejected them. It was only after sykes pico comes in that the French revisit the issue, the question of forming an Armenian legion. But the Cypriot one never never got off the ground. Can you tell us about
1: Eleftherios Venizelos and his attitude towards Cyprus?
0: So, so Venizelos was Prime Minister of Greece from before the war. He was a reformist Prime Minister uh, who basically comes to lead, though himself was not uh, really a part of um, the overthrow, if you like, of the older political order uh, some years before the outbreak of the First World War. He comes from Crete. He was a revolutionary leader in Crete, and he implements numerous reforms in in Greece. He never, uh, I suppose, hid the fact that he was pro-British, that he was an Anglophile. Um, He takes Greece into the Balkan Wars relatively successfully and comes out of those, you know, having significantly increased Greece's borders Um, and he signs as part of those a treaty with Serbia where they will mutually come to the aid of the other if they're ever attacked now when the first world war starts um, the king of Greece Constantine wants to remain neutral wants Greece to remain neutral because he's married to the Kaiser's sister and to be honest, he also himself has—he's a Germanophile. Um, so for the for the on powers, the British and the French in particular, they they always felt that Constantine uh, Constantine's neutrality was flavored with you know German, I suppose um, pro, you know support or friendship. In any event, Venizelos is eventually compelled to resign. And shortly thereafter, as the situation unravels, Bulgaria enters the war. This is towards the uh, end of 1915. Bulgaria enters the war and invades Serbia. Uh, Cyprus is offered to Greece. The government of the king, which was pro-royalist, refuses the offer because it meant that they would have to go to war on the side of Serbia. Meanwhile, Venizelos removes himself from Athens and in 1916 establishes a second government in, in Greece, in Salonika. And post the failure of the Gallipoli landings, the British and French forces end up going to Salonika and they begin the Macedonian front with the support of Venizelos's government. Eventually, in 1917, Venizelos manages to to reunify Greece insofar as that occurred. Um, But officially speaking, the king abdicates, his son takes over, and Venizelos becomes prime minister of a reunited Greece. Now, his position on Cyprus is somewhat uh, uh, influenced by the British offer of 1915. He believes that the British... Uh, will offer Cyprus to Greece again. And therefore, Cyprus does not feature highly on his list of, so to speak, if you like, demands. And he always favoured a position which Triantafilidis comes to agree with, that the Cypriots need to keep the British close to them. They need to engage and... um, if you like, develop their own internal uh, democratic, if you like, um, politics, and if um, slowly call for union with Greece and not become impatient and certainly not become violent. Um, and when we do see violence in 1931, Venizelos, is opposed to it. Uh, And he criticizes what what occurs when there are attacks on government buildings and including the burning of government house in Nicosia. So he always favored an approach, um, a a more, I suppose, constitutional approach to bringing about analysis.
1: Who was Haji? Neftichios Haji Procopius. Can you describe his significance?
0: Yeah, so he's a really interesting figure that hasn't been studied very much at all. He was uh, a mayor of his um, very large village in Nicosia, Deftera, and a member of uh, the legislative council. And he comes... To the forefront if you like, in the early 1920s when the on the one hand the the, the sort of more nationalistic Greek Cypriot elites don't want to participate in representative government and and he is one of the figures that steps up and and fills that void and then manages to maintain his popularity when the nationalists do re-engage in the, in politics. And the British basically consider him to, and others. He isn't the only one, but he's the, the most successful, one of the most successful ones, as if you like this independent local force who is highly popular amongst his constituents. And if my memory serves me right, he beats he beats Theodotu in one of the elections, um, and he does a lot of very important work in bringing about changes and infrastructure changes and other types of development in his, for his constituents.
1: What was the spectrum of opinion within Cyprus regarding Enosis? How did Armenian Maronites, Catholic and Muslim Cypriots view Enosis?
0: Well, generally speaking, Armenians, um, uh, uh Maronites, um, Turkish Cypriots, Muslim Cypriots, if you like, were were opposed to Enosis. They they saw it as a threat. They were, were, demographically speaking, in the minority. Turkish Cypriots uh, numbered around 20%. um, And they always opposed the idea of Enosis. They always saw it as a threat to their, um, even to their very existence in the island. Uh, and the Armenians, Maronites, other minorities took the, took the exact same view um, and consistently stated in petitions to the government whenever Enosis was being hyped up by, by certain Greek Cypriot nationalists. Because, of course, the Greek Cypriots themselves were, were never really united behind Enosis. And, you know, the book talks about the, the, the class... Uh, dimensions of this as well, but they, these other groups—they were always opposed.
1: What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of Greek nationalism?
0: So, on the question of Greek nationalism, the the, the book basically con- says that not everybody who was who may have considered themselves Greek uh, uh, danced with one tune to to enosis. And there's basically a transition going on in Cypriot society across the first decades of British rule and well into the 20th century, uh, which is really a a more top-down type of transition in which the educated classes are basically saying that Orthodox Christians are Greek and belong to the Greek world. And And this comes into, I suppose, conflict with the identity that had been dominant during the Ottoman period, which was Romeosini, or the idea that Orthodox Christians are, are Romans, um, uh, Romyi, basically from the Byzantine tradition. Um, and in some, you know, in the early period, there is a, t- a-, a tension here, even within the church in Cyprus, which is of course quite dominant. Um, on, on some levels, you know, that this is an alien idea, that nationalism is an is alien concept to our religion. Uh, but eventually, by the First World War, there, there is a sort of accommodation happening whereby the church, I think, feels that, well, this is the only way that we can oppose the British um, and you know through enosis and through cultivating greek nationalism um, but it takes it's a, it takes a long time for this to filter down through the middle classes and through the lower cl- and eventually to the lower classes and this is a process that is ongoing during certainly during this period
1: how was cyprus's geopolitical importance evaluated before, during, and after World War One, How did the strategic value of Cyprus in World War I impact the course of the war?
0: Okay, so the, these are interesting questions. Um, before, be, you know, as the, when World War One begins, there is a general consensus amongst the British uh, that Cyprus was um, an inconsequential possession and that it's only real... Importance lay lay in the fact that it could be given up for something better, for some something more advantageous. Um, there was, for example, the, a proposal to cede Cyprus to Greece even before the war started, in exchange for control um, and using a base, a naval base in the Greek island, Greek island of Cephalonia, which is one of the Ionian islands. That didn't materialize, but the but the um, the importance of this is that Cyprus remained, even when the war started, uh, uh, you know, as a as a as a pawn, really, to be given up. Uh, there were hardly any troops in the in the island. There um, there would never have been any attempt to maintain the island. It, it, um, you know, to take forces there to defend it if it were attacked. Um, during the war, Cyprus. Of course, of course, the war was around Cyprus. So the real importance for Cyprus, uh, the real importance of Cyprus, sorry, was to basically not leak information to the enemy, um, because of its connections, in particular, and to Egypt. Now, what they did not know at the time was that what was going on in the war itself in Egypt, in Palestine, but also the the you know, what was going on in a limited way in Cyprus, uh, you know, for instance, the Arme- the base that was training the Armenians or, or, or whatnot, what they didn't realize is that at, at one point during the war, a group of Turkish Cypriots stole a, a small vessel, went over to Anatolia and basically spilled all of the these secrets. And this is corroborated by the fact that, they we they then flew airplanes over Cyprus and took photographs of the military installations. However, the role of Cyprus during the war was, I would say, relatively limited. After the war, when the British begin to re, to to consider the question of whether they should keep it or not, um, basically they those who are. Uh, coming up with the different reports, they've already made up their minds. They, they already have a position. We don't want to give Cyprus up um, and they begin, their, their, their emphasis is on the potential future uh, strategic value of Cyprus rather than the value that they can turn back to and say, well, look, it was a critical air base or it was a critical naval base or whatever. It, it was neither of those during the war. So, so they're basically talking about potential strategic value. So based on that potential strategic value, they make a decision to keep Cyprus. Now that potential <clears throat> that potential strategic value does not materialize post-war or even into the <clears throat> into you know later parts of the interwar period. They don't develop Cyprus as an air base. They don't develop Cyprus as a naval base. Um and they do revisit the question in the mid30s again um, but ultimately they they decide on the eve of World War II to sign a to, to actually sign a treaty with Italy, trying to keep Italy trying to appease Italy. They didn't just appease Germany, they appeased Italy by signing this deal. And as part of this deal they said well we won't develop Cyprus into a, a base without Italian, Consent, which is an extraordinary um, thing to agree to, when Cyprus was part of the British Empire.
1: Can you tell us about Archbishop Kirilos the Second and Archbishop Kirilos the Third? What yes. roles did they play in Cypriot history during the period of time that you chronicle?
0: Yeah. So. They are very important figures from around 1900. Uh, one of them p- dies in, n- during the war and then the other one takes over and he dies in the early 30s. Um, now, from 1900, there is what is known as a schism in the Church of Cyprus after the death of the Archbishop uh, Sophronius. Now, Sophronius, I've written quite a bit about. Sophronius was Archbishop under the Ottomans and under the British, and he had a position, basically, which was that the, the Church, in order to maintain its authority, needed to cooperate with the imperial power to maintain its authority. But the British didn't want to do that. But he never abandoned. Essentially, he never really abandoned that view, and he was never a champion of Enosis. However, the the two who vied to replace him, uh, who ended up being Giri, lost the second, and Giri lost the third. lost the second was was the more nationalistic, firebrand. Giri lost the third adapted Sophronius's position into what we might call a a position of soft enosis. Basically, um, this being, well, the British will give us enosis and we just need to hold tight and, you know, be good and, Eventually, he sort of comes to uh, somewhat change that position, modify it, I suppose. But the first one, Girelos II, he eventually becomes archbishop towards the end of that first decade of the 20th century, because the schism lasts for most of that decade. He doesn't um, serve as archbishop for very long, because he dies in 1916, I think. And then Girelos third takes over. Um, and he... He, does, um, he goes to London on several occasions after the war, but he fails to convince the British to give Cyprus to Greece um, because by that point in time, the British have decided, well, we don't want to give Cyprus up. And they um, cite those you know, strategic concerns and the potential of Cyprus to have a strategic role in um, you know, Britain's interests in this part of the world. Um, yeah, so Girilos basically to some extent is, is less ambitious and less active than his predecessor. Um, and there is a greater role for the politicians under uh, his tenure as archbishop. Um, but both of them ultimately you know don't end up succeeding.
1: What was the Cypriot's mule corps? Can you explain its
0: importance? So, yeah, the Cypriot Mule Corps um, is the subject of my second book and features here in this book as one of the chapters. Basically, when the <clears throat> when the British and French had to abandon, I suppose, their Gallipoli campaign, uh, this coincided with Venizelos in Greece establishing his second government in Salonika and the British and French forces went there and established the Macedonian front. Macedonia is a hilly mountainous terrain and they immediately realized that they needed mules to transport goods and other uh, items as well, and, in, and indeed wounded um, to and from the front. Somebody there knew that Cyprus had mules and that um, the, the, the mules in Cyprus were of a particular type that was uh, conducive to, for, for, for these purposes. And then very quickly they realised, oh, well, we're going to need people to, you know, handle the mules. Originally, they, they recruited some Macedonians, but then Venizelos, I think, was, a, was like, well, no, we, 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 I'll want them for, you know, my forces. So, so that was quickly abandoned. And then they, they hit on the idea of recruiting from Cyprus. So in order for this to happen, the High Commissioner of Cyprus at the time, Sir John Clawson, suspended or banned the emigration of Cypriot men of military age because they were beginning to leave, to go to various uh, countries beyond the usual countries of Egypt and other neighbouring countries like Egypt. Um, they were going to Western Europe, North and South America But once this was turned off, they were were basically pushed into enlisting into the Cypriot Mule Corps. They were paid a very good salary of uh, over three pounds a month. Some of them also were able to serve in other capacities, which meant more money. Some were foremen, some were interpreters. Others had specialty sort of jobs, but most of them served as muleteers, and basically they were attached to different units of the British army. Mostly they served in Macedonia, although some of them had to follow their units to Egypt. Uh, After the war, they also served as part of the British army of occupation of Constantinople or Istanbul. The incentives for the Cypriots, who were primarily, you know, Almost 60% of those who served were from rural areas, from small villages of less than 900. You know, the incentive was the the wage. And there was a scheme also whereby the British would take a portion of their salary to give to their dependents back in Cyprus. Their contribution was very substantial. I mean, over 20% of the Cypriot male population of military age served you know, some almost 12,000 served in the Cypriot mule corps. Um, and also, I mean, it goes without saying, I suppose that although they were promised that they would not be in harm's way, many of them were wounded um, and many of them also died as well. And this has consequences for after the war as well. Uh, but the, the, the Cypriot mule corps has been, was a very important event in Cypriot history, so many men left the island during that time. Yet it was suppressed from the historical consciousness because, well, it doesn't it doesn't quite gel right for the nationalists to draw attention to this overwhelming service. When, on the other hand, you're calling for the British to leave the island and to give it to Greece. Because very few, by comparison, served in the Greek forces during this period or even after the war from Cyprus.
1: Can you tell us about Sir John Clausen? Can you Mm -hmm. describe his historical importance and his legacy in Cypriot history?
0: So, Sir John Clausen was the High Commissioner of Cyprus for most of the war. He had prior to this served in Malta and he had also served in the colonial office. He was appointed High Commissioner at a time when the previous High Commissioner, Hamilton Gould Adams, uh, who's the subject of another article that I've published, he was <clears throat> basically, I think fair to say, removed from his role because he was considered to be uh, not not suitable anymore. And he was appointed Governor of Queensland. And Sir John Clawson replaced him. Now, Clawson was a very practical, level-headed High Commissioner. He tried to, uh, on the one hand, do as much as he could for the war effort, without um, rocking, I suppose, the boat in Cyprus. His his main focus was to not antagonise the Cypriots. Um, and, like I said, he, you know, he, he was the one who was instrumental in the successful recruitment of Cypriots into the Cypriot mule corps, for example. Um, He died in office uh, towards the end of 1918. Um, He's not very much... I mean, very few of the high commissioners and governors of Cyprus are are remembered by by the Cypriots because, you know, for them, they're British and they don't want to remember them. Um, But a lot of them did a lot of uh, important, uh, you know things in the, in the country in particularly around infrastructure particularly also in investing in public health um and other uh areas as well
1: can you tell us about sir malcolm stevenson why is he notable
0: so he replaces sir john Clawson as high commissioner initially uh, the appointment is a sort of uh you know, um, acting in the role, uh, but then he is eventually appointed to a full term, which which in, which means also that he's one of the more he's one of the longer serving high commissioners. Um, and it, it, this goes into when Cyprus becomes a crown colony as well. He 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 has a different, I suppose, legacy than Clausen um, because. For some Cypriots who know, I suppose, a little bit about their history, although it's completely one-sided, Stevenson is is a little bit of the a little bit uh, of the bogeyman because he is considered one of the people who prevented enosis from occurring after the First World War, and he is accused by some on the Greek Greek Cypriot side of the literature for antagonizing. Greek Cypriot politicians. And so, my book actually, not that it's, you know, in any way pro empire, certainly not, but what it does try to do is give context to his actions and also um, point out that it was also the Greek Cypriots who refused to engage in the political process and removed themselves from representative. Institutions at a time when uh, probably you know they shouldn't have done that, and um, basically you know blaming Stevenson only. So, uh, there is an element of him also being responsible as well. Um, however, blaming him entirely is is only is not really the full picture.
1: What is your book's contribution to the historiography of the British Empire and Commonwealth? How does your book advance our understanding of British imperial history?
0: So the book advan- advances British imperial history during and immediately after the war by showing the experiences of colonial of a colonial society, um, and this is this hasn't been uh, this hasn't been the, the focus of much of the imperial history to to bring together. World War I and British imperial history, and really look at the different sections of colonial societies and how they responded to the war and and the post-war period. Uh, So that is primarily my, you know, the main contribution, as well as, you know, more broadly, how the British went about um, maintaining and consolidating their empire after the war, certainly in this part of the world in which their interests were increasing because, of course, they take up mandates for Palestine, mandates for Jordan, mandates for Mesopotamia, what becomes Iraq. So, so they are really on the ascendancy here. Um, and, and, and Cyprus needs to be part of that story as well.
1: Can you tell us about the dynamics of intercommunal relations in Cyprus between religious groups and between refugee communities during and after World War I?
0: So, yes, this is a very interesting question. I mean, there's a lot of debates around the question of the relations between particularly Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots. And again, I, you know, I think by taking the approach that I did in the book to look at the different sections of society, I think it's pretty obvious that we can see that there isn't one exact answer for for for, for this. I mean... Generally speaking, the relationships were good. However, if we're looking at the more educated elites, there there is clearly tensions and potential there for conflict. At the lower levels, that's less so. However, um, there are also, as a result of uh, also the war, there are certain tensions at certain times that, potentially could spill into um violence um not not in rural areas in in urban areas um so this is where we see we are seeing i suppose um on the one hand some movement from rural to urban and their the, the the process that they've undergone for to you know to be i suppose radicalized um however Generally speaking, although there is the, the British fear the potential for, for conflict, their, their, their policy of trying to keep the, two, the, the main two groups apart, which has negative consequences, also, on the other hand, prevents there being any serious clashes as well if, 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 if that is uh, threatened.
1: Can you tell us about Cypriots' involvement in the Greco-Turkish War of 1919 to 1922?
0: Yeah, so this is also the subject of another article that I published in General of Modern Greek Studies in which I show that there was very, very limited, by comparison to their, the, the Cypriot involvement in the British forces during the Great War, there was very limited involvement of Cypriots in the Greek armed forces, both during and after the war. Mostly we are talking about Cypriots who were either in Greece at the time or or, or in the Ottoman Empire, you know, and were, you know, um, either volunteered or were forced into either the Greek or the Ottoman armies. Um, I also discovered that uh, a number of Cypriots, uh, Greek Cypriots, who were... um, in Egypt, um, and sometimes um, also in Greece, were forced into serving in the, for the Greek forces, and even instances of Cypriots being kidnapped in Egypt, uh, and that is the subject of that of that article. So I think we need to understand the context here um, and the the statistics really that very few, by comparison served in the greek and ottoman forces either during or after world war one um can
1: you tell us about the democratic deficit in cyprus in the early 1920s
0: sure so what i mean by this is i mean most colonial societies by the very nature of being colonized and subject to imperial control have a democratic deficit however in many cases they still have a constitution they still have representation uh, in the case of cyprus they have a constitution and they have representation however what happens after world war 1 is that because the british reject the the demands of the nationalists for enosis they decide to withdraw themselves from the constitutional Process and representative institutions. And this is the start, even though they come back to it later on, nevertheless, this is the start of a a radical, you know, a radicalization of a certain number of Greek Cypriots into this idea that in order for us to succeed, succeed and bring about Enosis we have to uh, not only not cooperate with the British, but eventually they go down the line of violence. And this isn't something that just begins in the 1950s. This goes back to this period, and, and specifically it goes back to 1929. However, that what, hap- what gets formed, the, a political party that gets formed in 1929, which, has, um, which is a secret party, essentially, and, and arms itself, it originates during this earlier period.
1: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, yeah. can you tell us about what you've been working on since completing this book? Where did your attention go since this has been behind you?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the What I immediately turned my attention to, if we're talking about connecting it to this book, was a, a small book on the assassination of Antonio Striandafilidis. Nobody had written about this. There were files that were released by the British um, in recent years, uh, known as the Migrated Files, uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Files, FCO files, which, which had uh, documents on the subject. And I decided to write a book about you know, The Assassination, uh, which was published a year after after this book that we've been talking about came out. So that was my uh, immediate research after that. And the other, I suppose, research uh, was on migration, um, because firstly, I wanted to return to... Uh, an important theme of Cypriot history that had been very largely either neglected or in this case, you know, there is this diaspora type of history which glorifies the migrants. Um, But I wanted to talk about the hardships as well and the difficulties as well as um, looking at it also from the point of view of the receiving country too. So I've done a lot of work on... Uh, migration to the UK and to Australia. And this is what I'm also still finishing um, insofar as I can finish <laughs> something as, cause probably there is more work that I'd like to do in the future. But for the moment, I'm working on a book on Cypriot migration to Australia.
1: That sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely spectacular. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in History channel on the New Books Network podcast. Today, it has been my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Andreykos Varnava. We have been discussing his newly published book, British Cyprus and the Long Great War, 1914 to 1925, Empire, Loyalties, and Democratic Deficit published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2020. Professor Andreykos Varnava is professor of British Imperial and Colonial History in the College of Humanities Arts and Social Sciences at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude.
0: Thank you for having me.